Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of life, the show of whiskey, the show of New York, the emergence and renaissance of cocktail culture in our modern era. Today's guest is the amazing author, whiskey aficionado, and senior drinks and food editor at The Daily Beast, Mr. Noah Rothbaum. We sat down and chatted during South by Southwest this year. He was doing a bourbon and barbecue class with Mr. Ed Lee. Sounds like an amazing class. I wish I was there. And he talks a bit about it and how Texas laws, damn it, they just don't give you the bourbon when you're looking for it. So I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with the decorated author and really lovely whiskey fan himself, Mr. Noah Rothbaum. Pretty restrictive in terms of uh, alcohol, <laughs> and regrettably, serving, yeah, and, and serving alcohol. So, um, you know, we, my original plan was to give people actually bourbon and barbecue, uh, which I think would make sense, sure, for a bourbon barbecue. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, unfortunately, we weren't able to do that. So I was like, okay, you know, we should at least give people something beyond our ideas about. Why bourbon barbecue works so well together? Yeah, of course. It was me and Chef Edward Lee from uh, Louisville, who uh, you know is famous for his restaurant Six Ten Magnolia in Milkwood, which has an amazing collection of, of whiskeys, yeah. um, some very old. And then Andrew Nolte from from Bon Appetit, who's a long uh, long serving member of that magazine. I think really the longest serving member, and then also yeah, I heard big for years now. For years, I mean, Iron Chef there, Panel. That's my first remember him. He's yeah. literally been there for. I think he literally has been there longer than anybody else, and and is really you know we you know met you know at all types of usually liquor events. Um, and he's a big fan of of, of whiskey and cocktails. So there's really a lively discussion. But we definitely you know we went towards um, sort of at the end you know some of these whiskeys that people don't hear about you know that you can still find you know whether it's you know it's encouraging people to find stuff that's bottled in bond you know it's obviously the Evan hill man all Evan the way hill on. i mean anytime you really see bottled in bond on a label yeah. i mean it's that was the gold standard right i mean like a hundred proof that was you know that was what people looked for right mm-hmm. and and you can still find it but weirdly those bottles, if anything, are underpriced now. Oh, so totally. Uh, Would you, can you give me one that you find to be particularly valuable, if you will? Well, I mean, I think some of the, I mean, it, it's sort of hard. <laughs> there, There's a lot, right? There, there are a lot of that. And, and to be honest, they're, they're sort of hard to find. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, because it's not. So it's one of those things where if you see it, you know, buy it, you know. And then uh, uh, there's a, you know, Rittenhouse Rye, you know, obviously Amazing, outside of yeah. Bourbon, but you know, it's an amazing, you know, buy. I mean, I think when I first tasted it, it was $14 a bottle, you mm-hmm. know, about whatever it was, 15 years ago. The workhorse. Yeah, and now, I mean, it's now, I think, gone up to like 20-something. But yeah. it's, you know, it's won every award. People love it. You know, that's sort of my, um, one of my measuring 
sticks. You know, yeah. that's that's my measurement stick compared to, you know, a new rye comes out. It's like, is it as good as written? <laughs> well, like, it is. It's it the template. Like, yeah. And you know, it's like one of the things, and this isn't a plug for heaven, no, although it is, but they're kind of, to me, the litmus, the benchmark, you know? Like you, like the Henry McKenna. Yeah. Like we don't have to well, learn that, out too that, much. That about was that was uh, there's actually one that um, Edward um, mentioned was the great. Henry McKenna one, and and also the some of the, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the the great bourbon buys are really only available in Kentucky yeah. or neighboring states, and you, you know, stuff that's like you know fourteen dollars a bottle that like Heaven Hill or Beam or other right. words don't sell in other parts of the country. You the, know, apparently, or, uh, old. Old Fitz is just in Kentucky now too. Yeah, I mean, I I was in a bar here in Austin and saw a TW Samuels like That's, you know, uh, yeah, and I was like, wow, like I haven't seen. I mean, there's there's a TW Samuels label in in my book, The Art of American Whiskey, but very rarely do you see TW. You see in Bill, the wild, right? right you yeah. see Bill Samuels, you know, his family's you know modern brand Maker's Mark right. all over, but the original TW Samuels, like, you don't really see that, like. You don't see some of these real legacy brands, you know, out, you know, on bar shelves. Uh, you know, it's, a lot of it is, you know, back in the day, you had, um, you know, brands making a lot of bourbon and rye, you know, and they would label it under different names. Like right. the bottling room, you know, a lot of these distilleries had all types of different labels, which they would put on for different markets. Um that's definitely changed because you know they've you know makes more sense the focus build up national brands bigger brands but i remember years ago I was was having a, a drink with jimmy russell wild turkeys yeah oh yeah long serving master distiller um, apparently you can drink anybody in the world into the table too i wouldn't even want to try um, <laughs> jimmy's amazing i mean you know his Eddie, his son, you know, has has been there now decades. Right, there. and Bruce is here in Austin all the time. Bruce, like you know, Jimmy's grandson. I mean, that's how long you've worked at a place where you know your grandson is old enough to be a brand. It's <laughs> crazy. But I remember Jimmy telling me that his favorite story ever about whiskey was one where it was two bourbons. Right, he didn't say what publication right, right, or the writer, but they loved one bourbon. And they hated the other one, right? And Jimmy thought it was the best article ever because he knew that the whiskey in both bottles was the same. Oh was, my god! And I was like, "This is every writer's worst nightmare." Yeah. But you know, to him, he thought it was he was tickle pink. He thought it was hilarious. It is funny that they loved one and then like the other one. But, do you, uh, Do you think that we we'll talk about? There's so much to talk about because you you have such a kind of this breadth of experience in writing and meeting people and stuff. Well, thank you. Know? you. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Do you? So bourbon is an, is a lovely thing. It's very coveted. Obviously, it's like jazz for us in the sure. States, you know, if nothing <laughs> an, else. An American invention, you know, exactly. cherished, long history. You know. Sure, we have a romantic relationship with it. Absolutely. Writing, like all, all yeah, of that. Sure. But it's become a, a very strange thing lately that people don't, do you think, I'll put it this way, make it really simple. Do you think people really know what good bourbon is? Or do people tell them what good bourbon is? I, man, it's a subjective thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I always say, like, you know, just because a bourbon or a wine or, you know, rum or anything, you know, a scotch, you know, is, is more expensive. It doesn't mean that you're going to like it more, right? Right. I mean, it, 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 like, what often you're paying for is warehousing and angel share and taxation right. and, 
Maybe they're using some amazing wine barrel that costs $3,000 yeah. to finish the whiskey. And I mean, those are all justifiable costs to be passed along. Absolutely, yeah. Taxes are incredibly high for alcohol in America. Yeah. But, like, does that actually mean that you're going to like it more? No. I mean, that's, you know, that's just how it is. Mm. I mean, I just did a story. I commissioned a story about Popeye's chicken, right? Hell, yeah. You have all of these celebrity chefs who love Popeye's chicken. It's great. I mean, th- this is like they're literally, their. I mean, we're, we're talking about Popeye's the chain. Like this is yeah, yeah, some yeah. hipster, you know, takeoff, but like literally right. the chain. You know, just because a whiskey is older doesn't mean that you're going to like it more than the younger one. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've tasted through countless flights from different distillers and sometimes I like the older one. Sometimes I like one that's, you know, the youngest one, sometimes like one that's... But that's, yeah. that's a good thing to, Absolutely. to just be open to it, right? Well, right. And I, and I think the problem is, is that, you know, as a country, we don't, we don't have that, you know, experience and that confidence when we drink, right? I think we always say that we drink out of fear, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like a lot of people, yeah. like, you know, they're very worried about what they, about like what they're drinking, what other people think about what they're drinking. Like really? I, I did, a, I was doing, I was hosting a, Party for the Daily Beast uh, about a year ago in, in a bar in uh, L.A. Um, one of the Alex Day, uh, Dave Kaplan mm-hmm. uh, projects, and this guy came up and he was like, "You know, I love margaritas, but I don't, I don't, I don't like the glass. Like, I don't like I, I, as a man, I don't like the margaritas." And I was like, "The aesthetic of it, he just feels like it's too effeminate, God, right?" Or, or whatever it was, and I said, "Okay, well, a." You could always ask for them to put it in a tumbler, right? You know, sure. Like, and and B, you know, if you really want, like, you know, if you're worried about that, <laughs> you could ask for your margarita to be made with mezcal, which, you know, yeah, is very macho, you know, absolutely. smoky, you know. But I always tell people, like, what what's you know, you know, or people are like, ah, oh, as a man, I could never drink a reg drink, which is absolutely ridiculous, it's right? Tar- yeah, it's but I mean, it's the stupidest thing you could hear, especially when you know that you know the strongest. One of the strongest cocktails I've ever heard made is pink gin, right? It oh, was sure. The Royal right. Navy, right? So it's Navy strength gin, which is 114.2, I think. So mm. that high, so that if black powder ever got, you know, should ever. Still can incinerate. Yeah. Exactly. It stokes black powder. You can still light it on fire, right? So it's Navy strength gin and Angostura bitters. And that's it, right? I mean, that's that's literally fire water that's I mean, right at that yeah. point. I mean, delicious, and bitter and chewy and all of it delicious fire water yeah. but fire water nonetheless and that's pink yeah and it's called the pink chin and that's you know the most macho of cocktails but so that, that begs the question then so if someone is do we not feel secure in ourselves there's got to be a larger no, psychological think, no, absolutely piece, right? i mean i think just because of because of prohibition yeah. because we lost so much knowledge during prohibition um as a as a society that we don't even, you know, we don't have the experience or the knowledge that we have with food. I mean, yeah. could you imagine if you were like, I don't want to eat marinara sauce in a restaurant as a man? I mean, you'd be like, or some, <laughs> or, 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 if, or if you were sitting there and somebody said, like, oh, like, um, I don't, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Like, I don't, like, I'm afraid that someone's going to come up to my table and, like, make fun of what I just ordered for food. Like, right. you never would, right? As Kale not, like, would not be a thing if that was the right, case. Right, right. Or, or something like if somebody came up to you and were like, oh, like, salmon? Like, seriously? <laughs> You'd be like, what? Like, I love salmon. Like, okay, like, 
what's your problem and but people are so worried that with whatever they drink that yeah. somebody is going to come up and say like why are you drinking that man and, and and they don't know so like a lot of times people will just you know drink out of fear like maybe it's their father's drink yeah. or it's their boss's drink or you know they, they it's don't safe to them it's safe and, and a lot of times they don't even like it they don't yeah. even know what to drink and it's just you know it's one of these things where you you know that's why we cling so much as a society to price mm. and also age statements because you know somebody comes up to you right and you say like what, what, what are you drinking you're like oh it's like this is like like fifty dollar glass of like whatever it is right, like right. McAllen like oh fifty dollar like oh it must be oh this is eighteen year old or oh. this is Pappy or what you know we you know the cachet of the age the cachet of the brand something I yeah. mean that I mean I think you know I talk a lot about this in my first book the business of spirits and sort of looking at Sidney Frank and the growth mm-hmm. of Grey Goose is almost like a case study. I think what, you know, Sidney did that was so genius was that, you know, he doubled the price, right? It was it was twice as much, it was twice as more, it was twice as, twice as expensive yeah, right. as absolute vodka, right? Yeah. So already that gave it a lot of cachet mm-hmm. and, and, you know, kind of in people's mind had already the level of quality had already risen, right? Right. And then he, you know, was awarded best tasting vodka in the world, right? And that was enough because then people would walk in, they would be like, wow, why is this so expensive? Portion was like, oh, just one best best vodka in the world. Got to be correlation, right? Yeah. Right, and that was, and that's enough because somebody, if everybody said, well, what are you drinking? Mm. Oh, this was just awarded best vodka in the world, and that was enough. I mean, that, and for the first time, people felt like kind of savvy. You know, they yeah. they felt like they knew. It was the same thing with Yellowtail, right? Or two buck chuck i guess you know like it wasn't like you know i had friends who would never ever have bought two dollar wine right Mm -hmm. i mean it would have been like blasphemous it would never have occurred to them to that but the idea was that like it wasn't just that it was cheap i mean sure everybody loves bargain but the idea was that the whole idea was that there was this wine glut where where you know two buck chuck you know was made with grapes that normally they would be sold for much more expensive And that, like, because of this wine glut, they're able to buy these amazing grapes and use them. And that's why the price was so low. And it, like, for the first time ever, a lot of people felt like they knew about wine. Mm. Like, they felt like they were actually, they could go to a party, put it on a table. People were like, what is this thing? They could tell that story. And for the first time in their life, they weren't shrinking from the wine list. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. they felt like they empowered, could own it, right? like, empowered. And, yeah. and I, I think we so, you know, you know, in this industry so take for granted the fact that so many people are still confused, like still looking for any kind of yeah. handhold to understand like what to order, like what, you know, like a lot of the questions like in yesterday's talk were, you know, about like trying to figure out what different, different whiskeys taste like. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I think, uh, you know, we were talking, you know, before a little bit about Bernie Lubbers, you know, the, the the you know the brand ambassador now for heaven hill and used to work for jim bean we uh, we had done a story i'd done a story with him years ago where you know we were once having lunch and he said my trick at like you know whiskey fest or Mm. whiskey live or anything says like i can you i can almost without fail predict what bourbon somebody likes i was like i was like what are you talking about i was like he's like well it works like this somebody comes up right and i say uh what's your favorite bourbon they're like oh you know whatever they name one bourbon it's like, oh, so you also like, you know, X, Y, and Z. Right. And they're like, yes. 
like how did you like what like how did, they're made, totally freaked out yeah right? yeah and he's like he's like and then you know they're i don't tell them how i do it but yeah. you know he revealed to me how he does it but i mean essentially there are only really three recipes traditionally for bourbon That's right? right yeah so you have the weeded bourbon you have a rye and then like the high rye mm-hmm. so i mean obviously it's not a perfect system yeah but it gives you some some blueprints right right and, and i mean it's funny because I don't think the consumer understands that, mm. right? Or even a lot of bartenders. So that totally like, don't. Yeah. If somebody asks for, you know, makers and there is no makers, like if you have another weeded bourbon, I mean, they're probably going to like that. Probably you know what I mean? Would, it's yeah. like, you know, maybe Weller, you know, I mean, yeah. maybe larceny, you know, larceny right. maybe a Willie, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, uh, you know, some other weed. And it's like, or if they want a high rye, maybe, you know, they like, you know, uh, you know, Jim Beam, Wild mm. Turkey is like, the next step to rye isn't that really far away. That's I mean, right, like yeah. you have a lot of rye whiskeys that are borderline to a high rye sure. bourbon. <laughs> so, uh, like, so, what did how did people respond to the seminar yesterday? It was pretty. It was, it was, it was good. It was it was standing room only. You know, yeah. it was, I, you know, I I wasn't sure. I've never um, spoken at South by Southwest before, and you know, a lot of the panels are very serious about very important topics. Like, I think are you putting air quotes? important no no, no very Innova- you know, innovative no, topic no it, well the, like for this one like there was one like about like ending world hunger okay you know? all right fine well, fair right, enough now right. i feel now bad, now right? you're now i set you up to be the jerk right <laughs> now, now you're the jerk um yeah. i'm glad it was you not me no but like you know edward and i are like sitting in the green room and yeah. we're like you know we're kind of slap happy getting ready for our seminar and and we're like i'm like what are they you know what are they talking about? like oh right they're they're talking about ending world hunger and we're talking about like like what you should eat with brisket i'm like you know not curing cancer of yeah and not quite and you know it definitely gave us a little bit of perspective but also i mean i felt kind of like a jerk like oh my god like what are we doing but Uh, it's got to be all it's it takes all kinds absolutely and i think people you know especially this was the end of the day i think you know a lot of people here at the food track obviously working on very important initiatives sure. and concepts and trying to, you know, solve real problems and could use a little bit <laughs> of bourbon uh, is an, an amazing was, problem. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, it was, you know, it was happy hour, even if we weren't serving bourbon, hopefully yeah. we were giving, making people thirsty. Um, and That's all you can hope for. Yeah, exactly. And, and kind of, you know, give them a little bit of fun and yeah. entertainment for uh, a hard day of uh, problem solving. Problem but, solving uh, in world hunger problems. <laughs> it's really kind of a funny thing though. I think that. Well, it's just, you know, you walk by so many people doing so much good, and then you have people that are doing startups. That's a great thing, at least about South by South. Just when you're downtown or walking around, it's really, really cool. But, you know, let's think of how how the hell did you get here, right? So you're a native New Yorker. I am. And you grew up doing writing? Were you inherently a writer? I mean, it was was, was a weird thing. It's like I've, besides working in like like a day camp, um, I've always worked as a writer. It was like no really the only job that I've ever had. I mean, I did I did a an internship at the Metropolitan Museum, but in the publications department. It's like one of these things. Still tied to when you again. look back and you see like the story arc of your life. It's like very you know. Um, and I always say that like you know my parents are extremely big readers. You know, were like, they writers as well? Not writers, but you know, in our house, like you know, I mean, they have more books than you know. I think some libraries yeah. do and. You know, they, you know, we always had, you know, the, the, the New York Times, like, you know, my dad still, you know, almost on a daily basis tells me stories to read in the New York Times, yeah. you know, the New Yorker, all these things. I mean, grew up with, you know, Words. really, 
deal with words and really, you know, the importance of writing and authors and journalists. And, I, you know, both my sister and I are, are journalists. Um, my wife is one. So, I mean, it's definitely, it's become the family business, whether or not that was their <laughs> intention. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, like at a certain point in uh, high school, I mean, I was like, I went to college, you know. Vassar, right? I went to Vassar, yeah, mm-hmm. um, in uh, the Hudson Valley, obviously long tradition of writers and, mm. and English majors there Absolutely. and there's no journalism program there but you know I worked on the newspaper for years and can you think about but, so because I try to think about what was that spark was there something that you read was there something you saw well, that I mean you know I always you know I knew it at that point that I, I wanted to write almost you know and, and you know after freshman year I you know I got an internship through like an alum um, I wouldn't suggest this to people but you know, when you're when you're 18, you don't really know better. Like, right. you know, I looked in the alumni files. There's a guy who worked at, um, like, Skiing Magazine, right? And he was like, okay, like, it was it was owned then by a company called Times Mirror, which is mm-hmm. out of business, but they owned a whole bunch of magazines. Like, you know, we're moving to Colorado. I would have hired you as my intern, but call this woman. She's the head of, like, HR or whatever. She can, you know, help you maybe find an internship. Right. Or and I called her, I think, literally every day for a month which again I, I, like now I, it's cringeworthy what is that cool? that's well, persistence right well, persistence it's crazy um <laughs> um you know um you I, want something go for it right? yeah i mean i think that was a little bit of overkill um <laughs> but um finally you know she was just like okay i got your messages stop calling can you come down and like chat? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I went. Then uh, you know, I, I did an I, they, that led to an internship at Popular Science. Oh wow! And then the next summer, I interned uh, at this old house magazine, which is Time Inc. which is still going, just sort of the new hotness, yeah. you know, at the time. And then both of my editors, um, at both of them had done the ASME internship program, which is sort of ASME is the American Society of Magazine Editors has a very, you know, um, prestigious internship program that you have to apply for and do. So, um, you know, they they both had done it and, you know, I'd worked with other interns who were from that program. It's an awesome program. So pretty, like, maybe clear path, like, Yeah, exactly. Very, you know, and it's sort of, you know, definitely, you know, for very, students are very serious about journalism majors and, you know, every week we, you know, they have a, you know, there's a seminar at different magazine and they, you know, have events. And um, so I applied for that and I, I did an internship, which is amazing, at Food and Wine. That's crazy. Um, so, still, still late, eight, late teens or you're in your 20s? No, in your 20s, okay. in college um, after my junior year. Um, I had spent a semester at, at St. Andrews um, in Scotland that semester and then, uh, oh. which is pretty cool. And then um, came home. Interned in Food and Wine, which was awesome at the time. Pete Wells, who's now the New York Times food critic, mm-hmm. had just moved to Food and Wine. Like um, he just so he, Pete had only been there a couple months. So I interned, you know, under Pete Wells, and then Letty Teague, who's now the, the she was the wine editor there. She's now the wine critic at the the Wall Street Journal. That's so um, Kate Crater, who now runs uh, Bloomberg's food uh, vertical. So I was pretty it was pretty amazing to work with those guys, and it was so long ago that like the cocktails and the spirits movement is was so nascent and you know pete obviously is now known for his food criticism but you know really you know was writing about cocktails and spirits for time out in new york you know really before 
many it was a thing right? war was a thing i mean yeah. it was like really like a personal passion of his which you know i remember you know it was like my first or second week he we had gotten some bottle of some weird liqueur or something in an mm-hmm. event came in he was like oh great we'll, we'll bring this to my friend dale i was like <laughs> wait what like this is my other way but i'm like this is my bottle like why are like who are you bring this to your friend you know like what do i know right but i don't say anything right right the next day you know he's like we'll go we'll see him at lunch so we go up and we go to um dale de you know his last bar mm-hmm. um at a, a place that i think it's called blackbird um in new york and um he that was right after the rainbow room and there's dale you know Audrey was still like, you know, learning from Dale. I think right, she was right. like the like bar back. You know, it's like this restaurant didn't last that long. It had an amazing clover leaf bar and mm. then the food, you know, sort of got panned by the times from what I remember. But the drinks it's all about the drinks, right? So we go there. I've no idea who Dale DeGroff is. You right. know, like I mean he's very nice. You know, he makes us three drinks, right? And, you know, one of them, you know, you know, it's just Oyster shots, you know. Um, I'd grown up in the Bronx, so he made me the Bronx, you know, the Bronx, Bronx cocktail. cocktail. Yeah. Never heard of it. I mean, the third one, I don't even remember at that point, right? But, like, I mean, those, like, really, like, probably my first real cocktail, like, yeah. that I, I like, was like, wow. Because like, when, when you talk about the topics that you wrote about, right? Yeah. It, so, science, right? Which makes some sense. And if you think about right. it, all this stuff kind of comes yeah, together. Sure. But w- had you had a favor? or favorite at that point like a place you were really going to dive into or was just whatever well, i mean it was I, can... I mean it's a weird thing i mean people when they find out what i do they always assume that my parents are heavy drinkers which is yeah is far from the far from the truth right they well they always ask are you a drunk which obviously is, is are offensive. you a drunk that's a horrible thing <laughs> right. to ask. or they'll say like you know and then and then and i'm like no like you know I'll, you know yeah um and i, I you know I don't, if i was i don't think i could you know my career You're pretty probably productive. Would, right, right. <laughs> I, well, my career A, I would not be, you know, I wouldn't be able to write as much as I do, and yeah. my career probably would have ended, you know, a decade ago. That's um, right. And then they'll be like, "Oh, I get, it, I get. It. Okay, your parents, like they're like they're drunk." So I'm like, "What? No. Why no. are they? I'm like, why right, they? Right. I'm like, well, okay. Now that's even more offensive. Yeah, but yeah. um, you know, but it's you know, I, my parents, you know, they probably drink more now because of what I do. Than they're probably they, interested, right? Because right? it's, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's also more stuff to drink now, but. <laughs> But, but yeah, they weren't, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I remember like the stuff in their liquor cabinet, there's probably stuff that's still in their liquor cabinet yeah. that, you know, from my childhood, you know, my, my grandfather had like a little bar in, in their living room, you know, mm. with bottles, but it wasn't, it was more like, that's what men of that generation had, sure. like, you know, like a little bar setup. But again, like, it, you know, he liked, you know, he liked whiskey and, you know, I feel like, you know, a lot of times our generation, it's not what your parents drank, but what your grandparents drank. So, That's fair, yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know, I wish that he he died when I was fairly young, but if, you know, I sometimes, you know, I talk about it a lot with my, you know, uh, my aunt, like if he had, you know, if he could see what I do now, he'd yeah. love it. You know, would be really would, proud, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, he, you know, he loved restaurants and, you know, good, you know, good whiskey. And, you know, but, you know, again, sort of the, you know, people who lived in the 50s and yeah. 60s. I mean, that was what you did. I mean, Absolutely. that was such a big part of Working society. Working lunches, man. But, I uh, still try to embrace that concept. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, I mean, like, you know, go, you know, going back, I mean, like, that was really, uh, you know, I look back and, I mean, it was really such a small industry at that point right. where, you know, there, you know, so much of what we now have uh, didn't exist. I mean, there weren't 
great cocktail bars in New York yeah. at the time. And Nor great ingredients in a lot right. of places. I mean, there were great. I mean, there were a lot of the ingredients that we now have, like you know, Gary Regan. Literally, I, I kind of refuse to call Gary Gaz. I mean, I'm sorry, Gary. Like that's, Gary's a far better name. Gary's Frank, just yeah. Gary. Like that's your. He's always going to be Gary. To me. That's and all. I love yeah. Gary, and that's that's you know. Um, it's now almost like my own nickname for him that I call him. Yeah. Gary. But, uh, but I mean, he created orange bitters because he couldn't get them. Like, I mean, all of the bitters that we have when you had Peychaud's and you had Angostura and that was about it. Right. Like, right. I mean, it wasn't, I guess, Fee Brothers too. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, you it's know, hard to get. You couldn't get in Texas for right. a while. Right. I mean, time, that, you know? that, that's, you know, it was also like, I mean, some of the stuff like you just couldn't find, like, you know, people made margaritas with, you know, margarita mix. Yeah. Like, and, you know, there was still a blender drink that you made once a year for Cinco de Mayo or, you know, nobody drank really tequila. Nobody right. drank like, you know, all of this Brandy stuff. what? Right. I mean, yeah. all this stuff that we take for granted now and the quality just, I mean, really makes it. So, I mean, I was very fortunate to be there, you know, at that sort of key change, whether or not I realized, you know, I, I knew that it was cool and that mm -hmm. it was happening and, Every year, I thought, okay, this this can't get any bigger, right? Like right, we have right. three amazing bars in New York. Like this can't, you know, this is, you know, then it'd be like, you know, those people, you know, who worked for, you know, Julie Reiner or mm -hmm. Audrey Saunders or Dale. Like you know, you've all these disciples of these different, you know, then their disciples had disciples like you know Jimmy Han yeah. and you know uh, Sasha's Phil whole legacy Ward here and, in Texas. Yeah, and then Sasha, you know, had his, you know, obviously Milk and Honey opens and Angel Share and. You have all these very pioneering bars that then, you know, beget other bars and other bartenders who go around the world. And mm -hmm. London at the same time is also, you know, Dick Bradsell and others there. And, um, you know, really kind of rediscovering the Do, cocktail. Since it, it you know, the, the coasts are always places where culture kind of yeah. promulgates from, right? Sure. So do you think that the modern cocktail renaissance could have happened anywhere else? Or did it have to happen? in new york as a guy who knows new york it could i almost feel like it couldn't have happened anywhere else it couldn't have started it's a good i mean it's a good i mean I, I i'll say what i'll say now is that like i think the revolution now is is in between the coasts right, That's right so it's yeah. hard to go you know to milwaukee or i was in madison wisconsin a couple of years ago and they have like a speakeasy you yeah know what's I mean? like, oh there's a like, there's a spot right. yeah exactly i mean like you can name any scene and you can now get a great drink just as you can now get a great farm to table meal probably yeah. in, in most cities or all cities now like you know you could definitely get a great drink in most places. and and which is not to say that there weren't holdovers you know there mm. were bars you know there you know there you know you could always find like a you know a hotel bar probably in new york where you know uh you know uh, the at the ritz carlton you know that on uh central park south there's you know a guy uh, murray you know mm. um you know who's famous for his manhattans you know he doesn't have a recipe he makes it depending upon what bourbon you choose or rye and then he picks a vermouth and like you know the ratio he does for you you know but like you know that was very rare you know it was like mm -hmm. you know one cocktail here or there or, you know you could find one holdover but really like it, it didn't exist um i mean i think why it happened in new york like you know, obviously there are a lot of different influences in New York. You know, yeah. you have all these multicultural different... Multicultural, for sure. Multicultural, you have all types of, you know, people. But, I, you know, look, if, if, you know, Dale DeGroff is really, in my mind, the father of the rebirth of cocktail. Like, mm. I mean, if, if you know, and, and he, you know, why he got into it was because Joe Baum, who was, you know, the head of Restaurant Associates, which was the huge restaurant conglomerate 
in New York, you know, they did, you know, obviously the Rainbow Room, yeah. later uh, Windows on the World, the New Worker, which was this fancy restaurant at Newark Airport back in the day, the Forum of the Twelve Caesars, you know, La Fonda del Sol. I mean, all these amazing restaurants that nobody really talks about. Anymore. Yeah, or got I mean, lost in history. You know, very. I mean, Joe Ben was like amazing. I mean, we, you know, Mimi Sheridan, um, the former New York Times food critic, who's now ninety-one, um, writes a column for me at the Beast, um, oh, cool. and you know, I had her. You know, she had worked with Joe a little bit um, at the Four Seasons when they opened that. And, you know, I was like a couple, you know, when the Four Seasons closed, I had, you know, I asked Mimi to write a story about Joe Baum and how he changed how New Yorkers eat. And, and the corollary to that is that Joe Baum also changed how we drink because when they, he opened the Rainbow Room, he, you know, Dale had worked for him in some of the other restaurants. But at the Rainbow Room, he really wanted Dale, the bar program, to be old school, right? I mean, yeah. Joe was old enough to remember cocktails made with simple syrup, made with fresh fruit juice, you know, the way that people had done it back in the day, maybe right, even right. before Prohibition. He told, like, Dale, like, pick up, like, Jerry Thomas, like, pick up, you know, you know, Jerry Thomas was, you know, the world's first celebrity bartender. Mm-hmm. I'd encourage you to uh, read um, my, um, you know, uh, what is senior uh, drinks columnist Dave Longstreet who now writes for the piece? Yeah, long he'd been at Esquire a long time, seventeen years now. He writes exclusively for us, and he wrote his book Imbibe about Jerry Thomas. In some ways, also changed the way that we drink and sort of reintroduced this whole generation of bartenders to these original recipes that Thomas had collected in in the eighteen sixties. But you know that you know those those ideas like you know that's what Dale had a rediscover and also teach himself you know teach himself all these old techniques figure out how cocktails were made without mixes and shortcuts and you know all the things that he was on a journey right like because he someone's got to bring it someone's yeah. got to bring the first guy that brings lotus root or something to right or, or so yeah or, i mean the first guy to look at a lobster and be like i think we can eat that or <laughs> look at that you know an agave plant and say That's in the right. middle of that i think you know this forbidding plant There's creating something. a settlement you yeah know, you i mean it's it. it's interesting i mean it's you know it's it's a fascinating thing i mean so you know if, if dale hadn't been in new york or if he didn't have the platform of the rainbow room or joe baum who was very exacting and demanding mm-hmm. and you know was you know so focused on cocktails and quality and you know really had the vision like I don't know. Like, I mean, it would have happened, but would it would have happened in New York? Like, you know, who knows? Like, yeah. It would have happened. You know, I think I think there were a lot of potential cities that have sure. amazing drinking history. But that's you know, you know the choice meetings, just serendipity. All these things are what really create movements. And any a day later, you know, that it would yeah, just so, be totally and, and I different. I think sometimes looking back, it's you know, as, as I was saying before, it it looks. You know the story arc is easy to see, but yeah. when it's happening or unfolding, it's sometimes you never see it, right? It, it's not that clear. And and, and to be honest, I, like even living it, I, you know, seeing this thing unfold, like I remember Dave telling me he was writing this book about Jerry Thomas, and I was like, "All right, like, I'll read it. it sounds <laughs> cool, good, like cool, man. <laughs> like you, you know, you, I'll buy what you know, right? But you know, at least one copy will be bought. Like yeah. I'm going to buy it, you know. And 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 when I wrote the Business of Spheres, which it was to be the tenth anniversary this September of when it was published. I mean, it was a very hard sell because nobody really wrote those books. Like yeah. I mean, now you could literally fill a warehouse with sure, all of the cocktail spirits books that have been written in the last ten years. But 
at the time there was a very small bookshelf and most of the books had been written by Gary Regan and then mm. and with um his um former wife uh, uh Marty um you know they had written out they had done really pioneering research a lot of when you when you think about because you mentioned yeah. how much writing occurs now how prolific it's got I mean there's going to be my friends writing a book about mescal now for white people you know what I mean like it's become tabletop stuff like we can access it and all kinds Absolutely. of ways but so being one of the guys that was kind of there at the forefront do how do you feel about your impact on this writing movement about cocktails do you feel like you played a part too yeah i mean you know uh, i think absolutely i mean i think again you know right place right time always um, yeah you know uh you know i was very fortunate to you know to have some amazing mentors and opportunities um you know when i got out of college i worked at smart money with the wall street journals magazine mm. um james b stewart who's pulitzer prize winning journalist who won a pulitzer for his insider trading coverage wow. his book um blind eye about michael swengo that doctor who traveled the world killing people is absolutely oh, wow. amazing book. Stuff, yeah. absolutely amazing book um but you know he was very big wine fan and like you know you know jim really created me i don't know why exactly but as like an equal you know he would yeah, yeah. you know he was you know i would read about stuff but he'd actually be tasting you know like he would you know be buying be like oh this is you know if you tasted that you know like, no but you know it was one of those things was <laughs> It was hard though at the beginning because, you know, I you know it's more money. I wasn't writing about how to make money, but how to spend it. And you know, I could get into the magazine some stuff about food Mm. or cocktails and spirits. I mean, you know, you know, I think one of my greatest achievements is writing about you know the Delma Gay Pachuga. Like I had to be one of the first people to have written about it. Like in. Oh three, I don't even remember where I heard about it, and, right. and tracking down Ron Cooper certainly. Um, where in the world is Ron Cooper? It was much harder then, but you know, like it was hard. It was hard. No, I mean, like you know, magazines would publish a story for St. Patrick's Day or mm. maybe Cinco de Mayo or around the holidays, and you know, I always like to say, like I remember around that time, Finlandia introduced Finlandia Mango, right? Ooh, yeah, at like the China Club, and it was like literally the one event like that month or every, you know, and. It was like me and, you know, Dave and Gary Regan right. and Paul Pack. I mean, like, literally, Jeffrey Lindemuth might have been there. Like, everybody who wrote about drinks. In one room. Could was fit in, in one room, room right? Could fit in one room was all there because that was like, wow, like, yeah. something new is coming out. Like, what is And you couldn't even, I mean, you couldn't even get all those folks in one room. And, like, nobody's travel schedule, like, except for maybe Tales of the Cocktail. Right. Like, you couldn't even get them in one room anymore. But that's how small it was and that's how like kind of sleepy it was yeah i mean i find it very hard to believe that most of those people turn out for a mango vodka launch now different like, deal now yeah totally crazy so, but, I, I mean, but i like it because it reminds me of like hendrix right so hendrix plays a small room paul mccartney's there eric clapton's there like, oh, yeah. before anybody's really really i mean I, my my mind i thought you meant hendrix again i was like oh, oh fascinating yeah. study i was like oh hendrix yes <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. jimmy jimmy yeah but, yeah, jimmy but it's that kind of thing where yeah. it it must be really exciting to see it change like in yeah. a, in a, it's like a kid that's grown up in a sense right it's very gratifying like when you know i meet somebody who read my book and then opened up a distillery yeah you know like and that's like that's you know, what i that's what what i did no right. <laughs> well that's you know like you know like that they you know read it they like get in you know inspired and they learn a lot and then yeah. they're like i you know that was one of the books i read like before i opened my suit and you're like 
how's it working out for you? Like, you want your money back? Like, is it okay? Like, like this is the worst decision. No, I, no, it's, but it's the hate I mean, mail. Is just getting... Right. I mean, that's, it's, it's, you know, it's gratifying, you know, um, doing that, you know, uh, you know, it's always, you know, as a journalist, like, you know, or artist, whatever it is, you, you want to create, you obviously want people to read your writing right. and have an effect, but like, it's always, like you, you kind of you have to kind of forget about that, like yeah. when you're doing it, because otherwise you can never do it. So, you just you know it's both gratifying and also terrifying when like you realize like that your writing has had a real effect, right. like and has led to life changing decisions that somebody has made. You, you know, just have there. to forget that you just do it and then put right. it out there, right? And then eventually yeah. something will. But it, you know, it's one. Of, I mean, it was in some ways it was it was too ahead of its curve. You know, it was you know there were literally like. I mean, very small bookshelf. Yeah. Now you go into Barnes and Noble, it's like shelves and shelves. So it was it was hard. And even after the first book came out, it was you know pitching more, and and like the publishers were still like pretty reticent to, and they were like they didn't really understand, and like mm-hmm. even the business sphere, it's like that you know they didn't know where to put the book, like in the bookstore, right. like should it be in the business section should be like even amazon like you know it'd be like number four book in like commodities like it'd be like <laughs> it'd be like you know Commodity, it was like good. gold trading and then like my it was like right. so weird it was like they didn't even know like what to do undefinable like, no right. label for you and right? and it's weird i mean i've you know we're, i've talked to or we're and also i've talked to the tipsy text and david allen yeah. about this and we're you know both of us had experience where you're so far ahead of the curve and you pitch books and nobody wants it and then of course you know a couple of years later somebody else you know has the same idea yeah. and the book is you're like oh my god there's the book that i wanted or that i picked exactly like, i have yeah. that proposal on my computer for that book like but that's just how it is you know yeah. um you know I, I think now you know you know for now running the daily beast drinking food it's it's awesome we have you know i've, I've written for a lot of different places and and to you know have such a large audience of mm. you know literally you know over like you know almost, i think it's roughly around 22 23 million uniques per month it's, yeah, that's it's incredible. Such a huge number of people who are so interested and so you know we do long-form journalism and are so you know really curious about the world of cocktails yeah. and spheres it's, it's a wonderful thing and you know the other project that i'm working on now with with dave is the oxford companion to spirits and cocktails he's the editor i'm the associator and called in i think just about every favor possible to mm-hmm. uh complete this I and mean, i think we're we still have a few more to call in i mean it'll literally be the definitive reference yeah. text for this and, and and i think part of it is that dave's just tired of people calling him night and day so you can just say buy the book it's in there like um look at, it's, it's all in there yeah. it's all in there like stop harassing um but um, when is when are you expecting that may conclude and actually hit the i think the that's shelves? supposed to come out and now in the spring of uh 2018 yeah so that would be pretty cool oh that's incredible so, um, it would be pretty amazing so you've got two books out a third on its way yeah. you know and you'll be doing this signing here at the austin convention center in yeah. about an hour yeah. we're still on time yeah. which is cool yeah. but when i think about journalism it was something dan rather's been a big splash this year at south by southwest beyond his career in general right an amazing he, he's here i didn't even realize that. oh yeah he's all over the uh, he's being a Texan, obviously, right. he's in sure. at least four or five panels wow. talking about politics, talking about. He's had a very, very acerbic tongue, but a, a very important one this time. Sure, 
So when we talk about journalism and how that's transformed, maybe at the result of technology, do you still have hope that people are getting good, honest, truthful information from their outlets? You mean like in general? In or? general, yeah. Uh, Whether it's the news or you mean Twitter or... I mean, I think it's more important than ever for, you know, I, I definitely, I think what's going on in this recent election has, has galvanized journalists, has in, yeah. empowered them. I think, you know, it's, it's more important than ever to do good journalism and do good work and really research pieces and fact check. And, you know, there's so many stories that need to be told now. I mean, does it shake you? I mean, does it? irritate you you seem so even tempered which is a great thing you know <laughs> but i mean it's got to rattle you a bit yeah i mean you know I, th- I think it's always weird when the president is calling out your news outlet on on twitter um <laughs> yeah. uh you know I, i'm very proud of the work that my colleagues at daily beast do I and mean, obviously you know we we get into it a little bit i mean i did do a story during the election cycle a for fact checking um, our president's claims about his winery, um, mm-hmm. which most of which were patently untrue, of course, uh, right? Uh, you know, uh, but uh, you know, I, you know. I, besides, you know, we do get into a little bit of politics. I think it's sort of be hard not to sure. in this day and age. Um, Dave wrote a wonderful story about like the important contributions of immigrants to mm-hmm. the cocktail. Like we wouldn't really have the cocktail with. Out immigrants, absolutely. I mean, yeah. when you think about so much of what we drink, obviously, came from other places. I mean, mm-hmm. even bourbon and rye. You know, probably their ancestors are. Yeah. You know, we were talking about people who came from Scotland and Germany, and you know, all over Europe. You know, who came here with that distilling knowledge. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's a section in my book about the Shapiros and also the, the role that Jews played in, in American whiskey, and mm-hmm. really, I mean, so many. You know, it was an industry that was so dominated by Jewish immigrants, um, and it really helped create this, you know, wonderful world of American whiskey. And we don't, at this point, we don't really remember the contribution of immigrants. You're right? Yeah. To, you know, it's a convenient thing well, right. to I mean, forget. It, yeah, I mean, I think it's you know, we we've, we've sort of had this nostalgia, you know, for the I call it sort of the Uncle Jesse syndrome, you know, where this idea that you know. All whiskey, you know, is made by you know some overall wearing you know right. guy from the woods, you know, moonshining, you know, and where in fact, like you know, distilling knowledge came from Europe, you yeah, know, wh- you know, whatever Ref- refined, right? Exactly. And and that's, but that's the wonderful thing. I mean, it's you know that there's always this give and take and how things mutate and change, mm. and you know, Edward Lee, you know, we were, the chef we were talking about this yesterday about like korean fried chicken right and like it's not like now it's all the rage right but obviously people in korea didn't make fried chicken like Mm -hmm. before but it's something that they saw in america enjoyed brought it back to korea changed it with you know to their palate to their what was available right you know their cooking techniques created something completely awesome and new you know that's in america and you know even though we're sort of the home of fried chicken that's right now that's popular, you know. I mean, it's this weird thing. I did a thing at the Japan Society a couple of weeks ago with the founder of uh, the ramen chain Ipudu. Mm, uh, Ipudu, yeah, right, uh, yeah. Harahara, and you know, I, you know, I introduced him, and he taught. He gave an amazing talk, and then we did a Q and A. And he was saying, you know, he, you know, he's famous for creating this pork, um, you know, Tan- head Tan- broth. Yeah. Exactly the pork head, which was it wasn't really 
a thing you know, I didn't before, know that. and nor did I really that that he you know this was years ago and you know he was saying that like it's like ramen's kind of this almost like an original fusion food right mm-hmm. like you know it's Chinese noodles you know obviously you know all these different broths are changing but you know vegetarian ramen's not really a thing in oh. Japan right yeah. but in the East Village of New York it is right because that's you know, of course, we got to make it our right. own. But, right? but you know, now if you go to Ipudu, um, half of the menu is vegetarian. Mm. And that now he's bringing some of those dishes to Japan. And that's like one of these amazing things where, you know, obviously ramen is a Japanese thing that yeah. comes to America. We put our own spin on it and then it goes back to Japan. And that could become its own thing. I mean, like vegetarian ramen could be this like whole sensation, which, you know, which could then come back to America, like the way that they're, you know, I mean, it's right amazing give and take and so i you know especially in this day and age i think it's it's important that we remember that you know a lot of cooking and drinks and cocktails came from some place right, we're definitely yeah. inspired by you know and and you know very rarely is something created in a complete bubble yeah. you know and that we owe a great debt to all of the immigrants who came to america and made america so wonderful and continue to make it so wonderful and diverse and the irony know. of make america great again is that it came from all of us <laughs> right I you mean, know whatever it didn't come from one particular group we, right i mean we all that's up here. that's i mean you know and i think you see that in in many ways in in food and cocktails is yeah. perhaps one of the clearest examples of how well that works together maybe and, it's asylum if you think about it food uh, and cocktails are an asylum was, from potentially maybe, this. i mean I, I think they've always sort of been a refuge you know yeah. for you know i think that's you know you know, I, I have a friend whose whose father, you know, very conservative. You know, we don't probably wouldn't see eye to eye in many right, right. Um, political issues. Um, but you know, he's like you're, you know, the only section of the Daily Beast that he reads like regularly is your section because, like, he might not, you know, we might not agree on a lot of issues, but you know, at least. The common ground, I think, for a lot of people is the drinking food. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, you know, as, as politics bleeds perhaps more into it, that might change. But, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I think that hopefully we can all still, and I think if we all did still, you know, meet for cocktails and drinks, we might get along a lot better. Well, you we know? check our politics um, at the door usually. Yeah, or, or you know, Weinrich, one of the first, I think literally the first story he wrote for me when we launched the section in July was about, tongue in cheek but but also very serious about how back not that long ago republicans and democrats would meet at the bar mm-hmm. you know in the yeah. senate oh, yeah. or you know in congress and they would have they would drink together for sure and it's like it's much harder to like you know completely <laughs> turn your back on somebody or not engage with them mm-hmm. if you're drinking with them you know like if, if there's somebody that you know to be like actually a person and somebody you enjoy drinking with whether or not you agree with them it's a lot easier to work with them you know now they don't drink together at all so yeah. it's just they it's go so strange isn't it? right and it's like you know that whole social aspect and that you know getting to know like across party lines i think would probably be more helpful now than ever before to understand so. and, and maybe bridge the gap between uh, whiskey American. solving more problems than it exactly ever did before. i mean you know it's uh, i don't know it's, it's a simple idea but the more you think about it, the more uh, I think it, how important it is for yeah. us to to reach across party lines and and you know uh, actually get to know each other. I agree. So we've got just a little bit of time left. I've got two more questions for you. 
And these are maybe these are the pensive ones. Hard hard to say. But so you've sure. done so much writing rooted in reality, rooted in culture. Does writing fictional work appeal to you as well? Yeah, Creating I, something from scratch. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of journalists oh, you know, <laughs> you know, fantasize about writing films yeah. or you know novels. The great or, American novel. You know, uh, I, I don't know. You know, uh, I did my you know I did my thesis about Bernard Malamud, the writer. You know, and mm. he, he was the master of the short story. I mean, but you know, I like his short stories more than I like his novels. And I always thought, you know. There's some stigma, like oh, like or you know, uh, you know Raymond Carver or whatever. Or mm. Chief, you know, uh, you have all these things where you know people are like, oh, you you just write short story. You know, it's like, yeah. no, like that's that's amazing. You it's know, it's art. like right. So it's like you know, I think it's all, you know, all journalists. Like, there's always this idea that we're gonna turn around and crank out, you know, <laughs> you know the next, you know, we're gonna be the next Hemingway or the next. Fitzgerald. That's or, right. I, yeah, Capture I mean, the human condition. Right, I mean, that's, yeah. that's how we romanticize this business. I love I that. I think that's, you know, you know, it's not always fun and it's not always glamorous. I mean, I think, you know, writing about drinking and food definitely ups that quotient. I mean, there's still a lot of, you know, drudgery and yeah. transcription and, you know, uh, grunt work. Um, but that I think, will, you know, I would lie if I said I, you know, I hadn't thought about doing it, but, I, you know, I don't. It's not something that I do. Not in the near. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know, it's uh, it's it's. I think it's sometimes hard to even you know, it's hard to get done everything that I need to do. Now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Well, so when we think about, there's so many different things you've seen, so many places you've been, so many things you've written yeah. about. The last question I have for you, and this has kind of become a staple for people I've chatted with, but you are let's say, anywhere in the world enjoying whatever kind of whiskey that you want, right? And you can sit there and have a conversation with anybody, living or deceased. Who might you want to spend a good chunk of time with, as you said, just kind of being people and just getting to know? Wow. Um, I mean, I, you know, I always, you know, unfortunately, when I wrote The Business of Spirits, like Sidney Frankie just died. Like, uh, that would be a pretty amazing person to drink with, sit down, have a, you know, have a cocktail with him. I mean, he saw everything. I mean, mm-hmm. he was running Shenley for years. It was the largest liquor company, you know, in America at the time or in the world, you yeah. know, sort of the Diageo time. Um, I think he would be a fascinating person. Um, you know, uh, uh, I.W. Bernheim, you know. Bernheim, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, would be amazing, you know, to see, you, you know, even, you know, getting to spend, you know, time with Elmer T. Lee or, you oh, know, some man. of those people. I, I mean, I... I mean, when I started writing about this, you know, I would see Booker nowhere around. I mean, I've gotten to know Fred, you know, pretty well, um, you know, over the years and, and spend time with him. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I got to spend, you know, a good amount of time with Parker Beam. I uh, mm. wish I'd spend more time. But, you know, people like, you know, I think, you know, now now we kind of appreciate people, you know, who've, who've accomplished that much. But, I mean, not that long ago, you know, uh, you know, they certainly didn't get the respect or you know yeah. the attention that deserved. But so you know, I always it's always sort of a running joke with a lot of the people who work for the different whiskey companies that they would always put me next to the distiller at the dinner. You know, like a lot yeah, of the yeah. journalists would like totally bored and like wanted to talk. You know, their friends or you know, right. have a good time. But they were like, we'll put Noah next to the distiller. <laughs> like you know, you know, I always have like you know a million questions for them and just you know. 
just pick their brain. You always learn. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's one of these things every time, you know, I sit down with any of these people or somebody like Dale DeGroff mm. or, you know, you're like, oh, what, like, what is he going to tell me about bourbon? You're like, your, your mind is blown. You know, I mean, there's always something that you didn't think about. And you're like, how did I never think about that? Like, how yeah. did that never occur to me? Like, and it's, just, it's, it's, it's unlike, uh, it's sort of hard to estimate how much you don't know. Like, That's you know, the best part. Like, yes, but, I mean, I remember walking around the distillery in Scotland with Charlie McLean, who's, mm. I don't know, wrote probably now a dozen books about Scotch. I mean, he's one of the, you know, depending on who, which writers you like, the mm. number one or two or three Scotch writer in the world. And there's Charlie with his, you know, little notebook out, furiously taking notes as we're, you know, going around these distilleries and asking a ton of questions. And I'm like, I mean, this is Charlie McLean. Like, yeah. you know, if he, you know, <laughs> that's still, if he still doesn't know everything, you know, then surely I do not know everything. He, and, no one uh, does. And I, I'm glad yeah. that, you know, I'm glad we get to spend some time to, yeah. to kind of get to know your story. Sure. And I'm I'm glad you're in town, man. I'm glad that we got connected, yeah, it and it was, to, it's good to, to chat there. with you. And and I I think you just have a lust for knowledge, a lust Absolutely. for life, and you never stop learning. So yeah. we'll we'll get you to the convention center <laughs> to be a, a superstar in your own right. So no, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks thank, so much for chatting. Thank you. Well, there we have it. The senior food and drinks editor for the Daily Beast has the upcoming Oxford Companion to Cocktails and Spirits book coming out in 2018 and has written about the spirits business, whiskey, and so many other things. It's great to sit down with Mr. Noah Rothbaum and peek into what it was like as this cocktail scene emerged in New York. All of the players, and as Noah kind of illustrates, a single night in which all of the main masterminds that kind of drove this cocktail renaissance were in the same room. It's something that can never happen again. In a sense, it's like New Wave. In a sense, it's like grunge and it's really great to hear Noah's perspective. There's such a natural-born writer talking and vividly describing this movement in his life. So thanks so much, Noah, for sitting down and chatting with me. And thank you for listening to Show to V with Mike G. I want to say that Chris Cornell passing away at 52 years of age is not only shocking, stunning. It is something that really deeply affects me. I had the privilege, thankfully, to see Soundgarden a few times and those guys are a massive influence on me and uh, I'm really really sad and I hope we can bond over this guys I hope we can listen to Super Unknown on vinyl and just kind of talk about how great songwriter Chris Cornell was so I'm going to end it on that note a little bit differently but please despite how sad and dark it may feel please keep it